Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What are the IT priorities of the U.S. Department of Commerce? How is commerce working to modernize its IT infrastructure? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Andre Mendez, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Commerce. Andre, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It's good to be here. Thank you. So before we delve into the specific initiatives that you're leading at Commerce, would you give us an overview of the history and mission of the U.S. Department of Commerce? So the Department of Commerce was established long ago, uh, and its objective was to foster you know, the development of commerce across the country to enable it uh, you know, across the interstate and eventually in an international manner. Over time, it has been substantially expanded by other uh, sort of, so to speak, duties and organizations that in a way complement uh, its uh, mission, um, but that are not as directly related to commerce as one might think up front. So NOAA, for example, comes to mind. Uh, you know, the census comes to mind as well. Um, but, uh, you know, but intrinsically, at the, at the end of the day, when you think about it in a holistic fashion, they all have a role to play in terms of uh, the economic health of this country uh, and its ability to, to compete uh, in the international uh, stage uh, from a commerce standpoint, while at the same time providing its citizens with information that allows them to uh, to go about their daily lives in the most productive manner. That's great. So, you know, I wanted to switch gears from the department to your office within the department as the uh, chief information officer for commerce. How could you tell us more about your office, how it's organized and the overall uh, effort in which it supports the mission of commerce? Uh, sure. So the Department of Commerce OCIO, um, the you know area, um, so to speak, the office has really two uh, very distinct areas. One that comprises the CIO office for the office of the secretary, uh, and that is charged with providing the typical IT uh, activities uh, that. Uh, you would find in, in a regular agency and in a building of the federal government. Uh, you know, issues like networks and help desk, connectivity externally, some application development, some cybersecurity. And then another area, which I call the OCIO proper for the Department of Commerce, that is um, really charged uh, with providing strategic direction and governance uh, on a Department of Commerce-wide basis, uh, including you know, providing direction and oversight to the bureaus from a strategic standpoint and conducting commerce, pan-commerce-wide initiatives that apply to every single bureau, uh, be them regulatory compliance, uh, be them uh, cybersecurity efforts at the strategic level, and so those two areas are quite different in nature, 
and together comprise the office of the CIO. Andre, what about your duties and responsibilities? I wonder if you could delve a little deeper in what your day-to-day activities, functions, responsibilities are as the CIO at Commerce. So uh, again, a little bit of a dual hat uh, by virtue of the areas that I just spoke of. On the uh, commerce-wide basis, uh, I really am responsible for the overall functioning uh, of the organization from an IT standpoint, regulatory compliance, uh, cybersecurity, dealing uh, with budgets uh, at a um, commerce uh, level, activities related to FITARA that require that there be uh, coordination across uh, the set of bureaus in uh, in the Department of Commerce. But then, you know, by virtue of the existence of the uh, office of the secretary CIO within my organization, providing uh, also some more direct, uh, you know, strategic guidance and some operational uh, guidance uh, to that particular office, Um, especially as we engage in consolidation efforts where the office of the secretary's OCIO provides uh, baseline services for the smaller bureaus that are located in the uh, building itself and that therefore avail themselves of the use of commodity IT, such as, again, networking, um, external access, uh, help desk, uh, application development, and the such. The objective, of course, is to make sure that we can leverage economies of scale within the building so that we don't have duplicate activities taking place everywhere with smaller bureaus that can best and more cost-effectively be performed under one umbrella. And so again, because of the nature of the office, I have sort of that dual hat. Although with the um, hiring of an OS CIO um, about 15, 16 months ago, uh, that really came into a much better positioning uh, just because, you know, the sheer workload associated with both, both hats that I was handling before that uh, were just not conducive to good administration. And so we, we really made sure that we officialized that position in order to enable me to concentrate on the strategic efforts and compliance efforts at the Department of Commerce level. Uh, uh, Andre, could I ask you, what's, what's the relationship with that new role and your role? Could you explain that a little bit? So the uh, CIO of the Office of the Secretary reports directly to me, and it is actually the only CIO within the department that reports directly to me. Uh, With the other CIOs, they report to the, uh, the heads of the particular bureaus although they have a strategic responsibility and uh, get direction, uh, you know, strategic direction and regulatory direction uh, from my office and as a result from me, myself. Um, But uh, they they report directly to the leadership at the local bureau. Yeah. So given your duties and how you so eloquently pointed out, I mean, you're dealing at Commerce with a a decentralized um, sort of IT uh, organization. I was wondering, what are your top, say, three management challenges, I throw that out there, that you face in your position, and, and how have you sought to address them? Yeah. So, uh, of course, uh, in this day and age, uh, the, the biggest management challenge uh, in, in the IT arena is always going to be cybersecurity. Um, you know, historically, all of these bureaus have operated very, very independently. 
and as a result, we have uh, you know very good cybersecurity, I would say, but at the same time, a, a disjointed effort at that because people have chosen you know a, a myriad of um, applications and directions in terms of cybersecurity. And so it, it does not enable us to, to leverage the economies of scale from an acquisition standpoint, from an administration standpoint, from a skill sets and training standpoint, because we have so many different applications and environments that we're dealing with pan commerce. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's, that's a, uh, an issue that, uh, that I'm trying to address uh, you know, very aggressively, on which I'm getting a very substantial amount of collaboration from my uh, bureau CIOs. Uh, the, the next issue is somewhat related to that, because with all of those different efforts uh, in the cybersecurity arena, you also have the need for expertise in substantial numbers at each one of the bureaus. And as you, you all know, uh, and everybody in the industry knows, uh, getting cybersecurity resources of very high caliber has become exceedingly difficult by virtue of uh, competition with the private sector, competition with the vendors, and competition with agencies uh, that have uh, a higher profile in the cybersecurity arena by virtue of what they do, specifically in the intelligence community and also in the defense department. And so, uh, because everybody's operating their own set of tools, uh, we need a substantial amount of duplication, which normally is um, fulfilled by both FTEs, but then by a substantial number of contractors. And when you're dealing with those numbers and with the competitive nature of the landscape as it exists today, there is, without a shadow of a doubt, a certain dilution at the end game. Of, uh, of talent, uh, and, and that is a bit worrisome. I prefer that we operate in a more consolidated fashion and therefore can leverage fewer resources, but of the highest caliber possible. And then the third uh, challenge uh, is one that permeates throughout the federal sector, and that is the fact that with the distributed nature of the, of the bureaus and also with the substantial scope of operations that they have, they themselves have uh, some degree of uh, independence inside of their organizations by the uh, business units. And so historically, that has always represented a challenge. So just as we have a FITARA challenge from the OCIO to the budget, uh, to the uh, bureau CIOs, in inside of each bureau, they have some degree of a FITARA challenge from the bureau CIO to the IT people that operate at the business units. Uh, and so that is something that we are trying to address as well, because just as they can leverage economies of scale internal to their bureaus, we can leverage economies of scale to the Department of Commerce at large. Yeah, that third point is a wonderful point. I mean, all those points are really, really critical around all of the federal enterprise, it seems. But that third point is uh, really interesting when you're dealing with a, a federalized um, system uh, organization. So, you know, Andre, what has surprised you most since taking on your leadership role? Um, at the Department of Commerce, quite honestly, uh, and as, uh, as much as I, I hate to say it, I've encountered a situation that uh, that wasn't ne necessarily as mature as one would expect from a cabinet level agency or department. Uh, and so uh, that was surprising. That was surprising. Uh, of course, it gave us tremendous opportunity to improve, to bring uh, innovation to the table, and in certain cases to effectively somersault 
past some of the steps that have not been taken in the past so that we could move innovation and modernization at a faster pace than it would otherwise need to occur. So it's a, a little bit of a blessing in disguise because uh, some of the iterations that took place in a lot of private sector companies and even federal agencies over the last decade or so um, had really not been executed at the Department of Commerce. And so we could bypass all of those intermediate steps and go very aggressively into a more modern posture that is heavily uh, reliant on, on cloud uh, resources um, uh, that is, um, you know, immediately operating at a different level in terms of cost effectiveness, and that is capable of leveraging uh, the what I believe are superior skills of vendors of software as a service, infrastructure as a service, and function as a service, rather than having to nurture our own and continually go through those iterations. So we've seen an enormous amount of you know, legacy servers running 2008 and even 2004 editions of their operating system that are now going into, let's say, a platform as a service like SQL Server uh, on an Azure platform um, that completely relieves all of the administration of the underlying uh, platform and allowing us to concentrate on the functionality associated with the applications that reside on it. So it was surprising at first, almost dismaying at first, but at the same time, it provided us with the opportunity to uh, to go forward and innovate at a fast pace. You know, I was wondering, given all of your background and, and the various experiences uh, in, in a very di- a sort of diverse group of uh, organizations in some respects, you know, how do you lead? What characteristics makes one, and from your mind mindset, an effective leader? And what, what leadership principles guide your efforts? So I think that there's a built-in advantage of having gone through every single iteration and level in an IT environment, right? Um, My first job in the IT arena was as a programmer. And from then, you know, it progressed into senior programming, manager of programs, uh, manager of platforms, uh, you know, IT director in the old model, uh, and eventually to the CIO position. And so... Because I'm very passionate about this industry, uh, I've always kept uh, up to date with all of the latest technologies. As we were trying to innovate, you know, we could not innovate by going with the tried and true and with the uh, the old-fashioned platforms that were in place. And so I kept up my technical skills in the variety of areas, uh, and that allows me to relate to the staff, I think, in a very direct manner. And, uh, you know, you combine that with total and complete transparency and a a profound interest in the development of the staff uh, and the organization. Um, And and you have an optimum opportunity to establish uh, a good leadership style and to, you know, and to establish, uh, you know, a... Uh, good working teams, teams that that work well together, that understand what their role is, that understand the uh, the passion uh, that is necessary to work for a specific organization. The other thing that I, I've always made sure is that I work for organizations that, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, contributed to the betterment of the human condition. And so because of those higher purposes associated with those organizations, I've always find it 
very, very easy to inculcate a sense of mission into everything that we do. What are the IT priorities for the U.S. Department of Commerce? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Andre Mendez, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Commerce. Uh, so switching gears a bit, Andre, I'd like to talk about your strategic vision and key priorities uh, for uh, IT within commerce. So could you give us a sense of your IT strategy and what are your strategic priorities? Sure. So, uh, you know, keeping in mind that everything I say is going to be by default imbued with a heavy reliance on cybersecurity, right? It's just a substrate on which everything has to be built because otherwise it could all be sent for naught in an instant, right? So I'm not even, I'm not going to repeat it, you know, anymore, right? It just is what it is. It's like oxygen for life, at least aerobic life. Uh, And so... I have been a huge proponent of cloud adoption since 2011. Uh, and actually, even before that, Special Olympics uh, actually was uh, basically 100% cloud-based when I left in 2009. Um, and that was done by virtue of donations of, uh, of software and services and capabilities by five of the leading uh, IT organizations in the world. And so if an organization like that without any resources to speak of, could make that migration, why not a government agency? So when I came to the BBG, that became the North Star. And so we were 90% uh, cloud uh, you know, um, based uh, in, in 2014, right? With the only applications that were not uh, cloud-based, editing of uh, high-definition video, which is, as you guys probably know, um, you know, it's extremely bandwidth intensive and latency sensitive, and therefore, uh, you know, a very difficult accommodation for cloud-based environments back in 2014. It just couldn't be done without massive expenditures. And so when I left and came to ITA, uh, you know, we had a very, very strong direction already there in terms of cloud. And we effectively brought them into 100% cloud, uh, you know, uh, compliance and dependency uh, by 2018. And so when I uh, ascended to the commerce arena, that basically became uh, sort of a mantra, but not just because of cloud for cloud's sakes, but because the ability to leverage software as a service, infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, allows you to spend a lot fewer CPU cycles and dollars 
on commodity operations that really truly do not bring additional value to the mission of a particular bureau and therefore free dollars so that they can be put into the application layer, the user interface layer, the user servicing layer that provides the je ne sais quoi of every single uh, bureau that we operate with. I mean, the Department of Commerce was not created to run Windows or Linux servers. It wasn't created to administer databases. It was created to uh, influence the way that organizations and people can leverage commerce in order to, you know, to uh, enable the United States uh, to be more competitive on an international scale uh, and to raise the level of standard um, of living inside of the United States by virtue of interstate commerce. And so uh, the uh, the abs the creation of abstraction layers for all commodity services is the main driver, you know, from a strategic standpoint and one that provides a very easily identifiable and relatable North Star for every single thing that we do. That's terrific. You know, I was wondering, you, you kind of hinted at it, though, um, Andre, are there specific internal drivers and external drivers that have shaped and informed your strategy? And I, I don't know if you could delve more into the principles that shape and inform it as well. But you know, cyber, you said is under is, is it cuts through all of what you're doing. Are there any other things that are happening that maybe formed your vision of of how IT should operate in such a federated model? Well, well again, the, the the issue associated with having a highly functioning IT environment uh, has to has to focus on the areas that are truly important and unique. And so, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the abstraction of commodity layers not only operates from a budgetary standpoint, from a technological standpoint, but also from a human resources standpoint, right? Uh, what I mentioned before in terms of being able to consolidate around technologies and therefore reducing your needs for uh, you know, the, uh, the amount of people that, that you need if you're repeating stuff everywhere is extremely important because uh, you know, given the opportunity, uh, these IT environments continue to expand ad infinitum and with them, the resource requirements that from a budgetary standpoint become almost impossible to, to accommodate. And so, uh, you know, wanting to have the best of the best when it comes to people and to have a, a lowest common denominator that is extremely high uh, because every single individual can have a, a dramatic and sometimes drastically, uh, you know, uh, fearsome role in, in an IT organization. Uh, each in one of these individuals needs to be operating at a, a very high level. And if we're constantly concentrating on activities that do not provide intrinsic additional value, that is a waste of human resources as well as budget and, and constantly exposes you to frailties from an administration standpoint, from a cybersecurity standpoint, uh, and from a hiring standpoint, because people who are not working in the latest and greatest will find a way to move elsewhere, especially the fantastic people that we want to have on board, uh, to move elsewhere where they can work with the latest and greatest. And so, uh, you know, it, it, that becomes a North Star as well. Employee growth, employee satisfaction, uh, employee retention that comes from, uh, you know, presenting them with the best opportunity to work with the most exciting technologies. And of course, 
you know, in order to do that, you need to have a, a very aggressive and inclusive hiring agenda that spreads as wide a net as possible, and that then becomes extremely pragmatic about the people that you bring on board and hire. Uh, you know, when your uh, you know hiring pool. Uh, really comes from a very diverse uh, set of backgrounds. Uh, you know, you have a cultural diversity uh, that enables, uh, you know, the, the unique neurons that all of us have that have different experiences to come to the table and to effectively interact with other neurons that are somewhat different uh, and provide a more complete picture. And that's why every single one of my organizations has always been a true United Nations type of environment that has a representation across the entire spectrum of humankind. And, and that, I think, has been tremendously beneficial because people understand how dedicated we are uh, to, to the betterment of our workforce uh, and by virtue of the missions in which we've always have always worked, the betterment of mankind and its condition. You know, it's wondering, you know, we get into specifics and you've mentioned cloud a couple of times. I was wondering if you could tell us more about the migration across the enterprise and, you know, maybe some of the benefits and some of the challenges in moving to the cloud. You know, by and large, uh, you know, the benefits uh, are are a little difficult to quantify at first, right? In, In your typical business justification, Uh, People try to identify every single thing that is going to happen that is going to reduce this particular cost, that particular cost, and that's going to be able to pay for any all expenses associated with the transformation and then generate savings in the end. I believe that there are models, uh, both of current operations and of future operations, that are so drastically better during the transition that they justify being very aggressive on the movement, even if you don't have a full and complete uh, economic analysis of the end game. And that might sound a, a little reckless, but, but I will tell you that uh, you know, if I spend three years analyzing uh, the economic benefits of such a transcendental transformation of the IT environment, I have no doubt that I'm going to get to the end of those three years and be totally convinced that I've just wasted three years of savings and of improvements and of advancement because I was calculating the savings. And that, to me, is an untenable situation. Uh, There are risks that are worth taking, calculated risks, of course, that are worth taking from an operational standpoint where the benefits are so obvious uh, that you have to take that calculated risk. Uh, You know, these migrations become so compelling from so many uh, aspects that not undertaking them and and aggressively pursuing them is effectively the highest risk that a uh, CIO could possibly undertake. The status quo is the highest risk in a modern environment, both from a business standpoint, a financial standpoint, a technology standpoint, and certainly a cybersecurity standpoint. That's a great point. You know, I was wondering, um, Andre, how does the stabilization of your critical systems factor into your overall, you know, modernization strategy? And how do these efforts work to fortify the resiliency of your department and the bureaus? Well, you know, when you go through these transformations, invariably, you have to have a a good analysis of the platform that you're migrating. And often, when you go through that analysis of that platform, you uncover uh, information that was not very well documented, 
um, that was, uh, you know, maintained or known by a group of individuals that had accompanied its development and growth over a 15, 20, 25, 30-year period, right? And that contained and, and, and possessed all of the intelligentsia, all of the critical information that had evolved organically. They knew it in a lot of ways just because they knew it. You know, and it was it was uh, you know readily available in their cortex, and uh, as those people retired, you know, all of a sudden you became keenly aware that there was some memory, corporate memory, that was walking out the door, that was not necessarily well documented, especially when it came to the nuances uh, or the most obscure nuances of something that nobody had had to deal with in terms of, uh, let's say, for example, interfaces. So assume for a moment that you're migrating from a legacy financial environment that had been in place and working uh, very well within its capabilities for the past 20 years. And that has uh, you know, 85 interfaces to packages uh, that have been upgraded over the years and that require bilateral compensations in order for those interfaces to work. It is almost impossible to find a system that is that old that is going to be totally and completely documented without having access to the people that have administered and undergone all of those transformations. And so when you go through that analysis in order to migrate it, you uncover a lot of that, never everything, but you uncover a lot of that and therefore create an additional resilience associated uh, with the new system. Because if you're migrating to a software as a service environment, for example, as we are in our financial tools right now, um, you, you change workflows, you do business process reengineering in order to minimize customizations. And as a result, you also are likely, uh, you know, minimizing the number of interfaces that you use. Because if you're going to use a standard financial package with off-the-shelf functionality, there is a good likelihood that you're also going to be using, let's say, a standard off-the-shelf uh, travel system. Uh, you know, a standard off-the-shelf inventory system. And uh, when you interface to standard off-the-shelf systems in which you've tried to minimize the customizations, the complexity of your environment is dramatically reduced because now these technology stacks that are required to match applications at that level are not ones that you had to develop on your own, but ones that have been developed by the respective vendors to service not one, but 10, 20, 30 federal agencies that use the same combination of applications. This is a dramatic improvement and a dramatic risk lowering and resilience heightening uh, for systems that are mission critical. And so, uh, you know, and, and you, one might not think about it at first in terms of that and, and the benefits that comes from, uh, from using those standard type of, of circumstances, right? But the reality is that you accrue them by the very fact that you deploy standard off-the-shelf systems with little customization. And so that is part of our strategy as well. Now, I'd like to jump to the conversation around enhancing customer experience. Um, can you tell us more about what you're doing in this area and to what extent are you adopting, you know, user-centered design principles? So this is something that has become very much of a focus for us. Um, some out of uh, just, uh, you know, a follow through to, to the transformation efforts that we've just talked about in terms of, uh, you know, standardization with software as a service and that type of, of, of environment. And so uh, that customer experience, uh, that uh, ability to establish uh, a navigation that is 
uh, you know, intuitive, uh, and that in a lot of ways mirrors what uh, you know everybody is used to now, uh, becomes absolutely essential. Anything shorter than that uh, becomes uh, unsustainable in the long term, which leads us to the agility associated with with these applications, right? The objective is to create an agile environment to such a degree that every day that you log into commerce.gov, trade.gov, census.gov, noaa.gov, weather.gov, that you get a, uh, an experience that is pleasant, that is to a certain degree standardized uh, in terms of user interfaces, and that is, is easily learnable uh, by anybody uh, who is using, you know, a cell phone or a laptop to access your services. So this needs to become, again, a North Star in terms of interfacing with our stakeholders in the American taxpayers and the American population uh, that enable us to increase our levels of satisfaction with our services and to service far more people with, uh, you know, either the same or fewer resources. Yeah, it's a spot on insight. I, you know, when you talk about the agile environment and, you know, how do you get there? I was wondering, it's got to be tied to an IT governance uh, across the enterprise. So what are you doing to enhance the IT governance across the department into the bureaus in the federated model? And what are some of the challenges of achieving this? Well, you know, governance, uh, you know, by, by virtue of necessity as a very heavy regulatory component associated with it. Because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you want to be constantly in a compliance posture that does not unnecessarily expose you um, uh, to uh, unwanted scrutiny, uh, especially if things go awry. And so uh, the, the, the governance process is has to be continuous in terms of its improvements but at the same time has to uh, sort of drive towards lowering the, the administrative burden associated with being you know, regulatory and legislatively compliant. Uh, and, and to accommodate the variety of, uh, of environments that you have uh, you know, within your organization. I will tell you that standardizing governance uh, is uh, a, a very important endeavor. Uh, and I'm a big fan of having a, a centralized governance edict that then can be modified by appendixes or addendums at the bureau level or at the business unit level that change only the absolute necessary, minimum necessary in order to apply that governance uh, optimally to that particular environment. What I don't want is for every time that there is new uh, legislative uh, or regulatory frameworks that uh, happen on the, uh, on the horizon, that we have to go through these entire sets of multiple workloads at all of the different bureaus to interpret, uh, to delineate uh, you know, policies for following and being in compliance when we can do that once at, again, at, on a centralized basis establish that governance as the uh, as the sort of the uh, the guiding direction for everybody and then allowing for uh, you know any deviations from that uh, only uh, as absolutely required and to the limited scope that they absolutely uh, you know can be uh, restrained to uh, 
so that uh, you know on a constant basis you have this drive towards eliminating unnecessary functions to eliminating unnecessary work that is duplicative in nature and that creates more exposure from uh, a litigation standpoint uh, from an administration standpoint then it provides value uh, and you know because you know having lawyers uh, and, and policy experts reviewing the same thing over and over and over at one of the bureaus in order to get to the promised land of compliance uh, and effectiveness, uh, it is effectively a waste of a waste of time. So uh, I'm a true believer in centralized governance uh, that is directional uh, in nature and prescriptive in nature, uh, and that that is supplemented by the unique characteristics of each one of the bureaus. You know, I was just wondering, given your role and the role of your office, uh, the capital, uh, the IT capital investment process, how does that work? What kind of guidance do you do, do you give to the bureaus? Is there a connection there? And if so, um, how are you strengthening that kind of guidance? Hmm. So uh, again, you know, uh, having operated in a very, very diversified environment, um, our our sort of uh, strategic direction of the club goes a long way towards that. Effectively, we're outsourcing the risk of capital investments, uh, you know, and 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 substituting them with operational uh, costs, right? That I think are more manageable in nature and easy to justify on an ongoing basis, especially if you're leveraging economies of scale, and it allows you to reduce your costs uh, from an administrative standpoint uh, as they relate to capital acquisitions. Um, but uh, we also are trying to centralize that type of uh, structure into uh, a, um, a financial vehicle that we are very lucky to have at the table by virtue of the incredible business acumen of our OCFO and budget shops. We are one of the few agencies that has uh, a non-recurring expense fund that utilizes uh, you know, expired funds from previous years in order to enable uh, transformation. And most of that, of course, is in the IT arena. And so it, it's called the NEF or non-recurring you know, expense fund. Uh, and we encourage um, uh, organizations, uh, bureaus to apply for NEF funds sort of as an internal version of the technology modernization fund in order to make those transitions uh, that would otherwise be too painful to make if you're waiting for, uh, for appropriations. And that accelerates that legacy migration uh, timeline forward very aggressively with the understanding that with every single one of those technology migrations and legacy um, you know, uh, migrations that you actually are bringing to the table, uh, if not outright savings, at least a cost avoidance uh, escalation um, that, that becomes uh, burdensome from a budgetary standpoint. And so what you have is sort of a, a, a fund that, uh, that enables rapid deployment uh, of new capabilities without having to wait for the appropriation cycle. And that hopefully reduces expenses and allows for organizations to dedicate more of their funding uh, to the charter of the organization rather than to infrastructure maintenance. How is commerce and its bureaus leveraging emerging technologies? I'll explore these questions and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour.
How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Andre Mendez, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Commerce. And the next question I want to get into, and you've touched on this, uh, Andre, throughout our conversation, underscoring the importance that everything you do um, has to take seriously the security, cybersecurity realities of the day. I was wondering if you had any, any more to add in terms of how you're working strategically to help both the department and the and the bureaus kind of reduce that cybersecurity risk. Yeah, sure. So I'll give you a perfect example. I think that is currently in the works. Um, post solar winds, um, the, uh, the Congress, uh, you know, expressed an interest uh, in uh, what it would take to dramatically increase our cybersecurity posture. And and part of that was a proposal for a, a fund a cyber reserve fund that would dramatically accelerate uh, our uh, already stated desire to migrate to a zero trust architecture. And so historically what would happen is if there was news that there was gonna be a, a bolus of money that was gonna be available, the first thing that, that uh, would be done in past uh, you know, uh, iterations uh, was to basically do an apportionment to the bureaus, send them a, some money and say, go at it, make it happen, modernize, uh, you know, reduce our surface of attack. And we took a completely different approach this time. I, I created, together with my CISO, a, um, uh, a cybersecurity task force, Department of Commerce Cybersecurity Task Force, that have together the you know, 10, 15 best resources from a cybersecurity standpoint from organizations like NIST, PTO, NOAA, Census, NTIA, uh, ITA. And by bringing these people together and saying, stop thinking about your bureau and start thinking about the Department of Commerce. What do we do on a commerce basis that can best leverage this amount of money that brings us into a more standardized environment uh, and that enables you know, a more cost-effective uh, cybersecurity administration going forward, be it endpoint protection, uh, be it zero trust architecture, uh, you know, identity uh, and access management, being an ESOC that is all-encompassing. How do we do this? And they met on a regular basis, multiple times a week. Uh, for four hours at a stretch over a month period, and they together 
came back with the recommendations, seven or eight recommendations for exactly what we should do, what tools we should deploy, how we should deploy them in a holistic environment from a cybersecurity standpoint that is pan-commerce and that is no longer in isolated silos that are doing their own thing. Uh, and the results were spectacular, both because they were willing to play and partner with us, and because I believe that we got great uh, traction with both OMB and The Hill on the concept. And frankly, I think that is going to be a model for other agencies and even for the federal government at large in terms of uh, centralization of certain procurements and strategies uh, and implementations uh, so that you know we don't have everybody out there doing their own thing. It, it, there's got to be a point at which we come together, abandon our fiefdoms, and look at the common good for an agency, uh, for a bureau, for a federal government, and for the country at large. Switch gears a little bit to the impact of the pandemic on the on how the department operates. I was wondering, uh, how, could you give us sort of a progress report? How how did transitioning over to remote telework kind of concepts and are there any just in general andre just any lessons learned from the switching and, and the transitioning um that you'd like to share with us um so i will tell you our transition was almost entirely and completely seamless so we were literally you know in business i, I don't want to say 100 percent because i might be misrepresenting a few stragglers out there amongst the you know, almost 100,000 people that work at the Department of Commerce between FTEs and contractors. Um, but I think we could measure them on one hand. They had trouble, right? And, and we dealt with that very quickly. So come Monday, after the edict came, came down, come Monday, we were operating at full capability. Uh, and that was absolutely spectacular. Now, you know, of course, with some of our bureaus, you know, people have to be in laboratories. People have to be in weather stations. People have to be on boats. People have to be on airplanes, so there was all of that. But that continued uninterrupted. And so the transition was very, very uh, easy, far easier than one would expect. Of course, we had already, by virtue of our orientation towards the cloud, established a substantial number of systems that enabled that remote work uh, as a de facto standard, right? And fortunately, we did not have any particular scale at one of our bureaus where the concentrators, the VPN concentrators would be overwhelmed. But even in the agencies that had that problem, they got together with the industry and resolved it in very short order. So that was very gratifying. And it elevated the role and perception of the CIO and IT in general. Um, but you know, to say that this is without challenges going forward it is a different ballgame. Um, you know, uh, I personally am, am somebody that very much enjoys uh, frontline interaction with everybody. Uh, I do management by walking around on a constant basis and make it a point to have at least 15% of my day dedicated to that. Because I believe that interacting with people that you don't normally interact with in senior meetings uh, gives you a perspective in terms of what they're doing that, uh, that is not only extremely instructional, uh, but also a lot of times uncovers issues that you a lot of times not become aware of. So, so uh, I miss that tremendously. And I think that if I had to point to anything that would be a, a negative, that that would be it. Now, the transition back into the office is going to present 
um, you know, some, some serious challenges, I, I believe, be, by virtue of the multitude of personality types that we have to work with and accommodate. There will be people that will be absolutely delighted that they're back in the office, myself included. And there will be people that will have enjoyed and been far more productive during this past year than they've ever been before by virtue of their personality uh, and, and those traits uh, and the fact that they feel much more comfortable where they were. Uh, and so we are going to have to be very cognizant of those differences and then strive to accommodate them in the best manner possible with the understanding that it has been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that we can accomplish what we need to accomplish even in a 100% remote environment. One could argue, and I think the case has been made, that a lot of agencies and then departments have actually experienced higher productivity during this pandemic, right? I don't know that these are long-term longitudinal studies, if it's sustainable, but the reality is that I don't hear anybody out there saying, oh my goodness, what a dramatic loss of productivity. This is a disaster and we can't possibly operate this way. Much to the contrary. And so as a result, I think that we will have a set of challenges associated with this return. And these are macro challenges because not only do they uh, you know, uh, relate to the workforce in general and to the way we do business, but also to the overall uh, infrastructure uh, of, uh, you know, of government agencies in terms of uh, uh, workplace uh, you know, requirements, workplace locations, uh, real estate needs, uh, meetings, uh, meeting spaces and teleconferences that are accommodating to a hybrid environment, but also has profound economic uh, impacts potentially on things such as, you know, uh, restaurants downtown who relied on a very large federal population to somewhere between 11.45 and 1.30, uh, you know, skip away from their office and consume, uh, you, know, um, you know, the goods uh, uh, that were being sold by restaurants and other, and other such shops. And so uh, this is going to be a, an enormous, enormous trajectory, difficult trajectory to navigate, right, um, because of all of those implications, including, for example, tax, tax revenue. Uh, if, you, if you imagine the, you know, the, the tax revenues that are generated by restaurants in, in the District of Columbia and that are now uh, not being generated by virtue of people staying in Virginia and Maryland operating out of their houses, right? And so that there are repercussions that are going to be felt uh, wide and far uh, and significantly. And so we need to make sure that we navigate these in the best manner possible, understanding that uh, there are no optimal solutions, but that nevertheless, uh, we are not in as dire a situation as one might have thought by virtue of having to rely on, on very large amounts of telework. We've been talking about transformation, uh, modernization, if you will, at Commerce and at the Bureau level and your strategic uh, perspective on that. I'd like to transition a little bit to it, it, your efforts or the Bureau's efforts leveraging uh, emerging technologies. And what I mean by that is AI, machine learning, blockchain, or you know, robotic process automation. A, a, uh, what are you doing in this area? What technologies in this area hold the most promise for uh, Commerce achieving its, uh, its mission? Well, quite honestly, almost all of those, almost all of those, uh, you know, we have some very advanced bureaus in terms of uh, the way they operate. Uh, for example, PTO has already deployed, a, you know, a very substantial machine learning environment and what one would call artificial intelligence uh, for patent examinations. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they're already reaping tremendous benefits from, from their efforts in that arena. 
I expect that NOAA uh, and uh, all of their efforts associated with prediction of storm patterns and uh, trajectories uh, and you know, the immensity of the impact will be dramatically improved by machine learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, I know that the robotic process automation is already being leveraged by several bureaus to deal with some of the uh, you know, data, data transition and repetitive processes associated with processing uh, you know, citizenship requests. Uh, and of course, the census, uh, I, I have no doubt, will be doing a very substantial amount of work in that in terms of preparing for the next decennial uh, and trying to figure out the best way to conduct the most accurate possible you know, census in history. Um, you know, this past census was exceptional in terms of uh, the amount of people it reached. And of course, the, 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 the barrier now or the, the bar is now set very high for the next one, especially from a technological standpoint. So I expect that these efforts will continue, that they will be pan-commerce, and that uh, very few, if any, um, very few, if any, bureaus will not be profoundly influenced by this. And of course, at the, at the, uh, at the inception of one of these efforts, uh, is NIST, of course, with their with their uh, you know standardization of some of these processes uh, and some of these development efforts that will allow people to deploy these type of uh, of technologies in a uh, a very sane and systematic methodical manner. Just two more questions, if you don't mind. And one is, uh, in your mindset, uh, given your your perspective, how has the role of uh, the chief information officer evolved in the federal government, and what are the characteristics of a successful CIO? Uh, you know, it's uh, it's funny because uh, you know I've been participating in conversations about the new role of the CIO um, that I can recall uh, speaking at conferences in 2000 2001. So we got two decades of it, and everybody keeps talking about the new CIO role and uh, how it needs to be this and not that. Um, and and of course that is true. That is true. But a lot of what we've talked about during this conversation is really about that. Uh, because as this transformation is accomplished, the CIO becomes so much less of the individual uh, that is dealing with the technology as, uh, as, as the baseline and the individual that gets into business capability as the main requirement, right? Uh, because if the, that evolution uh, is uh, not only necessitated by the business, but also enabled by all of these technologies we've been talking about for the past hour, right? If you are not dealing with all of the commodity stuff that you dealt with before, you can truly focus on the business. Right? Now, that is going to require a transformation on the part of CIOs that should be continuing and that, to my, to my belief, has been happening for a long time. I put together a presentation that I delivered uh, you know, across the world uh, and certainly in many places in the United States called the, the CIO call of duty. And the reality is that as technology becomes more and more a factor in the future of organizations, right? Uh, the helicopter view that a CIO uh, has of the organization becomes all empowering in terms of enabling the CIO to take on COO and even CEO roles. Uh, because uh, you know, when you know everything from uh, you know, 
CRM and customer interactions in the front end to supply chain and deliveries on the on the back end, including manufacturing, including all of the issues associated with data acquisition, uh, you know, transformation, and then uh, delivery in the form of uh, you know displays or or, or uh, visualizations you effectively become more knowledgeable about the end-to-end business that you are dealing with than any other uh, CXO officer, right? The CFO has a limited visibility into that, while the CIO has that that visibility to that as well as the visibility in the budgetary aspects, right? And so, uh, you know, the role is going to continue to change. And uh, I truly believe that, uh, you know, within the next, uh, you know, couple of decades, you will not find a CEO that is not incredibly well-versed in not necessarily the underlying technology, but what the technology can bring to the table in terms of enablement of future business models. And so I think I think that that role is going to continue to change in that direction as it has over the past few couple of decades. Yeah, wonderful perspective. One last question, Andre. Uh, what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? Um, about a career in public service, um, I, I, listen, it's exceptional. Okay, um, I I have been a big proponent uh, of a concept called servant leadership. Uh, I believe that uh, having a purpose in life uh, that is uh, larger than oneself uh, and that uh, vies towards the betterment of the uh, human condition is the highest uh, uh, nobility that one can can, um, aspire to to achieve. And so uh, if you are thinking about uh, becoming a public servant, I certainly hope that you are doing it for the right reasons in terms of uh, enabling a better and better functioning and more equitable and fair society, rather than just for the fact that uh, for better or for worse, there is a little more job security than in the private sector. Um, but you know, if you choose to do public service and if you do it right, uh, I have no doubt that you will sleep well at night knowing that uh, you're fulfilling one of the highest aspirations that a human being can aspire to. And I certainly feel that way uh, and, uh, and thoroughly enjoy it. And it gives, gives me purpose. It gives me sense of belonging, of ownership of my destiny and of uh, my contribution uh, because at the end of the day, at least for me, the most important thing is to be consequential. Mm. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today, Andre. I thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to sit with us and and really offer some great insight on the work you're doing over there at Commerce. Um, I want to thank you for your time today, but more importantly, I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Oh, that's very kind of you, sir. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, and I hope it presents value to anybody who will listen to it in the future. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Andre Mendez, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Commerce. Be sure to join us next time for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? 
The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. WFED Washington, WTOP FM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.